0: I don't say much when they're leaving because you don't hear. You just watch them, and that's okay. They're cute and uh, worth, <laughs> worth watching. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We have been the last two weeks in verse 18, and uh, this will be our final message from verse 18. I'll give you an overview of what we have done up to this point for those who uh, may have missed a week or two. And we just read uh, the glory of the Lord that Moses saw is surpassed in the New Testament with the glory that we can see in Christ. If you were to be on the bottom of Mount Sinai and Moses came down with his face glowing, the Israelites who were walking with God would have wanted to see what Moses saw. But most of them didn't want to see what Moses saw. They were afraid of God's glory and didn't want, they just wanted secondhand glory from Moses' face. And even then they were um, afraid of him so that he put a veil on his face. But different than the Old Testament glory that Moses saw is only Moses saw the glory, but look at verse 18 of chapter 3. It says, "...and we all, all of us can see the glory of the Lord with unveiled face." We're not veiling our face. We don't mind reflecting the glory of the Lord from our lives, from our faces to the world. And this is Paul's ministry. This is in the context of ministry that he's teaching the Corinthians how to minister, and his hope that he is very bold. And here's the bold hope that he has that he is telling the Corinthians that they can see the glory of God. He's assuming, I am very bold with you, Corinthians, because you can see the glory of God. And you can be changed, all of you, no excuses. If you don't see the glory, as as Brandon mentioned, it's our fault. It's not God's fault. Because in Christ, the veil is taken away. You don't have to be part of the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain expecting someone else to see the glory and tell you what he saw. You all believers here don't have to wait for Sunday morning to learn God's word, to see his glory. You need to see it all day, every day. See it in creation, but see it very specifically in revelation, in the word of God, and see it most specifically in the word of God with the person of Jesus Christ. This is how God shows us his glory. He showed it when, first, when Christ first came. Three disciples got to see what the glory of God looked like on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then it faded. Christ's glory faded. And the disciples, even Peter, says later, I'm not even going to trust my own experience. I'm going to trust the word of God. And if Peter wouldn't trust what his own, what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have a better way to see the glory of God than even we saw him in person on the Mount of Transfiguration. We all can see Christ's glory. So Paul is going to be very bold with the Corinthians. And the Corinthians need to be very bold with each other, who they all know Christ. If you know Christ, you can have bold ministry with other believers because they can see the glory of God. How are we changed? Look at the middle of the verse. We are being transformed into the same image. The same image of the glory of the Lord. Are you serious? we can look like christ we can talk like christ we can think like christ we can minister like christ yes why because we can see his glory we can be it says beholding that's ongoing as you see the word transforming that's ongoing and as we are beholding the glory he is transforming us and how are we transformed from the inside out from one degree of glory to the other degree of glory And the final phrase, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God that lives inside of us. And we're going to do a study on the Spirit of God at the end of this message. So the first half is this verse. The second half of the message, we're going to go back through all of the references to in 1 and 2 Corinthians up to this point of what the Holy Spirit does for believers. And Paul has taught them. And the reason we're going to do this study is because progressive revelation, which means God gave his truth over time and he's going to give the Corinthians truth. And so as we're going to learn, as the Corinthians are reading verse 18, as we're reading it, what did they already know about the Holy Spirit? And he's mentioned about 14 times before this. Okay, so we're going to read it kind of like we're, if we were in Corinth reading this passage and the Holy Spirit, we've heard of him before and we're going to do a brief study at the end of our message today. On this, but we have to go back. So hold your hand here, and what was the glory that Moses saw? Very specific. Go back to Exodus 34. Okay, so hold your hand in Second Corinthians. We'll come back to that at the end of our time together. It is no doubt that uh, the sun is brighter than the moon. When I went to shop for plants this week, we had to find some plants that can survive in partial shade or partial sun. So we look at the tag of all these flowers and I know nothing, nothing about flowers. Everything I know about flowers, Fred has taught me Uh, and a few others, but mainly Fred, all right? And so I can't remember everything he tells me and and I don't keep all of the texts. So I go and I look at the little tag on the flowers and say, oh, this is full sun. Not going to work because I I need shade. But you know what's not on the tags of any plants that uh, that are at Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever you get your plants? There's nothing about the moon. Full moon, uh, waning gibbous, or whatever phase of the moon that you want to plant. It doesn't matter. The moon provides nothing for your flowers or your plants. Why? Because it is not as glorious as the sun. Do you know how many full moons it would take to be as bright as it is right now outside? 398 million. It would, I'm sorry, 398,000. Either way, 398,000 moons, 398,000 full moons to be as bright as the sun is right now, it would fill up the night sky. You would have that, uh, all you would look up and see, all these 398,000 moons. Just to get as bright as one sun. The sun is glorious. The sun changes things, as we have seen the last couple of weeks. But God's glory is greater than the sun. The sun was made on day four. And the earth, the, the world, the people of the world that deny a creator say that life is, is given to us by the sun. Well, why is the sun created on day four if, life, if, if life is, uh, the sun is needed for life? The sun's not needed for life. Guess what happens in the future? You know what the Bible says in Revelation 21? There's no need of the sun. We have grown accustomed to the sun. We like the sun, some of us. Just enough of the sun, not too much sun. But we have grown accustomed to enjoy sunshine. That's how God made us in his image to enjoy light. But no one's redeemed. No one's changed or transformed by looking outside and seeing the sun. Without revelation, without Jesus, people could worship the sun. And many cultures do and have. Why? Because they think the sun is God and can give them life. It provides for their crops and their well-being, their food. But we need something more than we need the Son. We need Jesus. We need to see him. We need to constantly see him. And we need to submit to him. Bold ministry because we can all see him. And if you're talking to a believer and trying to minister to them, you can be very bold with them, according to 2 Corinthians 3.12, because they can see him too. This is not secondhand sight like the people of Israel uh, at the base of the mountain where they're just told by Moses what he saw. They can see him. And we sang songs today that referred to seeing him. Almost, I, I picked the songs today. And every at least one stanza in every song had we can behold his glory. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Come look. When I survey, when I look and gaze at the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. We can all see him. Why? Because the veil is removed in Christ as we turn to him. Here's a summary. And we all, I meant to ask you, to quiz you to see if you remembered this. All right. At the end, I'm not going to show you that. I'm going to see if you remember it. All right. So say it with me. See him. Submit to him, show him. We see him by beholding his glory. We submit to him as the Holy Spirit changes us, and then we show him to the world from glory to glory. We're being changed. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. See his glory, submit to him, and then we can show him. You cannot submit to him and show him without seeing him. We don't come up with on our own or what the world says, what they think God should be like. No, we have to look at the word and see what God is like. And many people can see him, but they won't submit to him. And they've heard the gospel time and time and time again, and they won't submit to him. So if you don't submit to Jesus as Lord, you won't be saved. That's Romans ten nine. But if, you won't, if you'll confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So what is Jesus is Lord? That's a submission to him. The Holy Spirit we know from John 16 is drawing people and convicting the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. They're showing the world that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit's drawing people to God, but no one is saved apart from submitting to Jesus as Lord. And if you don't see him, or if you do see him, and you do submit to him, the last will come natural. Showing him. That's the easy part. The problem is, we're not showing him, and we wonder what's wrong. What's wrong with me as a Christian if I'm not ministering boldly for Christ? Well, I'm going to ask you, how much are you seeing him? Are you seeing more social media than you are of Jesus? then the priorities in your life are probably backwards. Are you seeing more of your friend's posts, more YouTube than you are his glory? Oh, the world is attractive. The world is deceptive. Satan's one of his major tactics is to distract. And when you are opening your Bible and reading, are you distracted? Because I was distracted this week. I have a graduation party and I got a lot to do at my house to get ready for a party. And I'm trying to read the word and I'm thinking of my to-do list that just kept growing. Like, oh man, one more thing, one more. I don't know how I'm going to get it all done. I have to turn off the to-do list mentally and say, you know what? That to-do list is not as important as seeing him. I have to see his glory every day. I have to meditate on what I saw about him throughout the day. Because I'll get discouraged and distracted and um, even despairing without seeing him. So if you're not showing him, then you're probably not seeing him. The second thing is you might be seeing him, but you're not submitting to him. How do you know? Well, when was the last time you changed something significant in in your life because you saw that it displeased God in the word? You read the word and you thought, wow, I did not even know I wasn't supposed to covet. And I am really struggling with coveting. It's a private sin that no one can see, but God is, the Holy Spirit's hammering me as a Christian for coveting my neighbor's wife or, or uh, property or house or whatever else, my neighbor's things, someone else's things. And that's just one example of not submitting to him. And when we see his glory and we won't submit to him, we wonder why we don't show him. Because we're obstinate. Why didn't the Israelites show him? Because they were a stubborn and stiff-necked people. We're a lot like them. We're cut from the same cloth. Even though we can see him, we often don't submit to him. Especially when it's hard, like loving your enemies. Oh, no. No, no, no. I'm not going to do that. There's clear exactly what you're supposed to do, and you won't do it. Okay, you're not submissive. You're not going to show him. So what we have in Exodus 34 to summarize... We have the first of eight uh, descriptions of the glory of God that we cannot be like because we can't be the I am. All people try with, with the Internet to be omnipresent or omniscient, to know everything, to be everywhere at once. You can't do that. You can track your kids and their phones, and you're still not going to know everything about what they're doing. They can get around it, I guarantee. They need to see and submit to God, and they need to show God's glory themselves. Okay? We are not God. We are not the I am. We are not the self-existent, need nothing, need no one type of cr- creature because we were created. We need something. We need air. We need oxygen. We need sleep. We need food. We need people. We are such a needy people. God needs none of that. He is the I am. Okay, so we are with me in Exodus 34. The two things that we're going to look at today at the end are going to be two other things that is solely like God, and and the middle five are the things that we have to reflect. The moon's only glory, and the reason I use the moon as an illustration, the moon's only glory comes from the sun. If the sun didn't exist, we would not see the moon, except if maybe it came in front of a star. That's it. There's no radiant from the moon itself. All it is is a reflection. And if you can think of your life as the moon jesus christ as the son our whole job is to reflect him that's it just keep reflecting jesus how do you reflect jesus by facing him by seeing him submitting to what you see of him and then you're going to reflect him then you'll show him so let's read exodus 34 and uh in review so exodus 34 moses wants to see the glory of the lord the lord passes before him in verse 6 of exodus 34 And proclaims, here's what you're seeing, Moses. The Lord, the Lord, this is Jehovah, the I Am, the self-existent covenant-keeping God. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we've looked at these so far. Those six things, the, the last five that we just read, are what we need to reflect but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is what we can't reflect. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the, chi- the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses' face is glowing after he sees this and uh, hears God proclaim. And what is Moses' response in verse 8? Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. You know what Isaiah, when uh, we, we sang about Isaiah's holy, 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 you know what Isaiah's response was? Same exact thing. Bows his face to the ground and worships. You know what we're we're, going to do when we get to heaven? We're going to bow our face to the heavenly ground and worship. And it's going to be perfect. Perfect worship. No distractions. No sin. No, nothing that will hinder our worship in any way in heaven. Missive. To others in heaven until then we need to this is a process right that we saw in 2nd Corinthians 3 we need to keep exposing ourselves to the glory of the Lord constantly daily as much as much of God's uh, glory as we can get in our in our hearts in our minds to keep our hearts and minds soft and learning and meditating on him okay so what we're gonna do uh, is uh, I just have a chart here of the attribute from Exodus 34 and then our growth. And this is a review down to uh, the seventh and eighth one. So the, I am the Lord. And how do we grow in, ref, in uh, understanding this? Because we can't reflect the I am. We try, but we shouldn't. We, because he is the I am, we need to be dependent on him. Okay? Second, God is merciful and gracious. Can we be merciful and gracious? Absolutely. So we talked about that, and we are merciful and gracious. One word, compassion. Have compassion on those uh, who are needy. Slow to anger. Oh, we all struggle here, especially when our to-do list isn't getting done as fast as we wanted it to get done. We can get angry quickly, and we need to be slow to anger. And uh, we looked at Christ. Uh, You can go back and listen to the last two messages. And our growth, we need to be growing and being slow to anger. Um, Fourth. Loyal love, that's steadfast love and faithfulness. Can we reflect this? We should and can be loyal, uh, loving and faithful. And we saw that at the cross, that Christ was perfectly loyally loving to sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Loyal love for any. Our loyal love, our steadfast love is available to, the text says here, to the thousandth generation or to thousands. Thousands of generations, that means anybody. So We can't have any categories of people that we say, I will love and show loyal love to everybody, but nope, that's not reflecting God's glory. So loyal love for any, and then forgiving any sin. Any sin, and that is, uh, you see there in uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That word transgression is the idea of rebellion, someone who knows what's right to do, and they break God's law anyway, and God Forgives and is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So there's no sin, there's no category of sin that we will not forgive because we have been forgiven all of our sin. So we can forgive any sin. Now, the last two, seven and eight, today, we cannot reflect because we aren't God. So the first one and seven and eight, we cannot reflect. So we have to grow some other way than reflecting these because we try to be the I am. And we realize we can't. We wear ourselves out. And, but we can and should because if you look, if you compare two to six with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, it matches pretty well. If you match that with the a description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, it matches pretty well. Why? Because we can and should reflect the character of our God this way. And so 7 and 8 are, let's look at them again, verse, uh, verse 7. We find the seventh one, who will by no means clear the guilty. A judge can clear the guilty, but we can't clear people who are guilty unless we have the authority of a judge. We want to be judged, right? Oh, we're very judgmental, but we hate it when people judge us. Oh, we want to sit on this throne of judgment, or the, we want to be sit where Judge Judy sits, right, and have the gavel and say, oh, nope. No, this is, this is right. This is wrong. Get out of here. You pay this. And we want to, we want to be the one who decides cases. But God doesn't give us judging the earth because he is called the judge of the whole earth. He will do what's right. Jesus says in John 5 when he comes, God the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. We don't judge people. We allow God to judge them. Okay, so number se- seven, no guilty person goes unpunished. God will judge those who are guilty. But don't forget number six, because anyone who comes to Jesus and says, forgive me, even on a cross next to Jesus, receives forgiveness, complete forgiveness. All of his sins, as far as the east is from the west, were removed from that thief on the cross, and he was given access to paradise that very day. So any sin, any number of sins, were forgiven. But they weren't forgiven the other thief on the cross. Why? Because he didn't ask for forgiveness, he didn't repent. He saw the glory, but he didn't submit to the glory. Herod saw the glory, wouldn't submit to the glory. Pilate saw the glory. Wouldn't submit to the glory. Judas Iscariot saw the glory, unlike anybody else, and didn't submit. The Pharisees watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and saw the glory and wouldn't submit. Tried to kill Lazarus and Jesus. And it as we try to give the gospel and show people the glory of God at the cross of Jesus and the tomb is empty and Jesus is at God's right hand and they won't submit to him. They're in the same category of Judas and the other thief and Pilate and Herod. They want to be the I am. They want to be independent of him instead of dependent on him. So we... But we want to, in number seven, we want to punish the guilty. There are so-called Christians when abortion hopefully is someday will be illegal. Maybe, maybe not. If abortion was legal from 1973 and forced on our country, there were so-called Christians that took guns into abortion clinics and shooting doctors. That's not a Christian's job. It is not your job to go out and shoot all the people that you don't like or that are clearly guilty of iniquity and transgression and sin. It wasn't Moses' job. He thought it was, and he took the Egyptian's life and hit him in the sand. And God said, that. <laughs> no, you've got to learn my way as Moses. You've got to learn about me before you're ready to lead my people. Because what would Moses have been like as a leader if he was like that? Lead? He would have been like, God, yes, destroy all those Israelites and raise up for me. Because twice he was given that offer. In Numbers 14, whenever they wouldn't go into the promised land, Moses a second time interceded for Israel. And uh, he wouldn't have, he would have been, yep, God, zap him, get rid of him. We heard in the intro to our service that Jonah didn't want, he had... Trouble with Numbers, God forgiving any sin. But Jonah wanted the innocent to go punished. But God says that no guilty are going to be unpunished. This is an attribute of God that the world does not like to think about. They take this attribute right off. Oh, they love two to six. Love it. And when you and I can talk and show this, the world's going to love us as neighbors if we are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and loyally loving and faithful and forgiving them if they are on your property or do something on, against you. They're going to love you as a neighbor. But if you tell them and, and tell them that your God that you serve and worship will not allow guilty people like them to go to heaven, they will not like that. Why? Because we want to think that even though we're guilty, we will go unpunished. Well, the attribute of God here in verse seven is no guilty person goes unpunished. Numbers 14, Moses interceded for the disobedient Israelites, and God responds to them. I'm going to read that for you. If you want to join me in Numbers um, 14, verses 21 to 23. Numbers 14. Keep your hand in Exodus 32. We'll come right 34. We'll come back to it. Numbers 14, this is when the Israelites would not go into the promised land. They were a couple days' journey away, and God says uh, to them in Numbers, and he's talking to Moses here, and Moses is going to relay this message to the people. 21 to 23, verses 21 to 23. The Lord says in verse 20, I have pardoned according to your words. So he's not going to wipe them out. Verse 21, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice. We'll stop there. So they saw the glory and did not submit to God, right? That's what God's saying here. And he uses the word glory. They have seen my glory and putting him to the test is a way of saying they haven't submitted to me. Another way of saying they haven't submitted is, here it says, they have not obeyed my voice. Verse 23, none of them will see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. When we see the glory of God in the person of Jesus, and we won't submit to every teaching that Jesus gave us, We are despising God. Whoa! I'm trying to be as bold as the text of Scripture here because you can see the glory. You can see what God revealed to the Israelites and why they could not go into the promised land. What was their judgment? Forty years of wondering, every single man except Joshua and Caleb dies. Doesn't matter if they're healthy, doesn't matter if they're 20 years old, they're 60 and they're still in good health. Nope, they're going to die thousands of I think we I calculated 83 deaths a day the Israelites had to with six uh, 1.2 million men and women 1.2 million people had to die in 40 years and they were having a lot of funerals and every funeral reminded them we disobeyed God all the children the next generation said if they were learning when we see the glory of God, we better obey him. And the next generation that inhabited the promised land, whatever God said to them, you look, read the book of Joshua, they're obeying God. They're hearing from God, they're obeying. But God doesn't have the guilty go unpunished. Jesus, at his first trial, when he was asked if he was the Christ, the Son of God replied, you have said so. In Matthew 26, 64, but Jesus says this, but I tell you, and he says this to the Jewish Um, audience but I tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power powers capitalized and coming on the clouds of heaven what was Jesus claiming there to the uh, Jewish um, Sanhedrin the Jewish leaders there you know what he's claiming I am God and I'm going to be seated right next to the father and someday I'm coming again and they said, you're blaspheming. And they're hitting him, beating him, pulling out his beard. What is God going to do to those people who pierced him? Let's look at, I'll, I'll just read for you, Revelation 1-7. Revelation 1-7 is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes back, John gets an image of uh, who, uh, at the very beginning of the book, Revelation one Um, 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. The people that pierced Jesus, that beat him, that pulled out his beard, are mentioned in the book of Revelation as seeing Jesus when he does come again. So so when the Jewish people saw Jesus and saw his glory, this is pretty much what they did. We don't want to see. You know what Orthodox Jewish people do today when they get to Isaiah 52, 13 to Isaiah 53? This is what they do. They do not read it. They can't read it. Why? Because it shows them a Jesus that they're rejecting, a Messiah that is clear. And we heard about him last Wednesday. What is God going to do with the people that rejected Jesus? None who are guilty will go unpunished. Why? Because this is his glory. This is who God is. No guilty person is unpunished. We could read Revelation 19 or Revelation 20 about the great white throne. All the dead, small and great, are going to be resurrected and stand before before Christ. And if their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, They're cast into hell, the lake of fire for all eternity. No guilty person unpunished. No world dictator, no abusive father, uncle, nobody who has gotten away with crime is going to go unpunished. No one who takes advantage of people, no liars, no cowardly will have their place in heaven. Revelation 21 says they'll all have their place in hell. No guilty person unpunished. We, however, cannot punish the guilty. This is a this is a God thing. This is God's right because he has all the wisdom, he has all the power, and it will be very obvious when he comes in power and great glory. No guilty is unpunished. So we are to give the good of Verses or Numbers 2 to 6 here, but we can't reflect this. Instead, how should we respond to this? No secret sins. None. No secret sin between you and God. Why? Because the guilty will not go unpunished. Why am I bold to say that? Because you can see him. You can see his glory. You know that one day all of your sins that have not been confessed will be exposed. Why? Because this is the character and glory of God. He will not pardon the guilty. He will pardon though verse 6 or number 6 here any sin. So you better ask for forgiveness and repent in humility. Because if you don't, the guilty will be punished. And you can see that you can see his glory. You can read the Bible and see that the guilty were, were punished. And if they weren't punished by human punishment, there will be a punishment one day. And Revelation 20 tells us about that. You can read it. You can see his glory. So you better confess your sin to him. This is how we respond. It is not reflecting a vengeful taking vengeance. In, in fact, Romans 12:9. Tells us not to take vengeance. It's it's the Lord's and he will repay. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 32 35. It's also referred to in Psalm 91:1, 1, 1 Thessalonians 4 6, and Hebrews 10 30. All of those passages tell us it is not our responsibility to take God's vengeance. It is God's responsibility. Old Testament, New Testament. So he doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. So we better confess our secret sins to him. Look, look at Psalm 139. And say, God, search me and know me. If there's any wicked way in me, you lead me in the way everlasting. And God, if you show me anything, and as you and I open our Bibles on a regular basis, we're looking for His glory, expecting to see that we have fallen short of that glory, and we're expecting to ask for forgiveness. Number six, knowing if we won't ask forgiveness, we will be punished. Not an everlasting fire if we are believers but we'll probably lose rewards, and you can see his glory, and I can see it, and uh, we can preach boldly and minister boldly to believers because they can see his glory. And then number eight, our sin affects other people. This may be a confusing last um, description of who God is, it sounds like it's in opposition to the children have eaten sour grapes and their teeth are set on edge, which was a proverb that the um, Jewish people said. And a couple times, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18 and uh, Jeremiah 31, both say you need to stop using this proverb. That is not true. God is not punishing children for their father's sins. However... If I was going to warn you as a father, don't sin against God. Don't have secret sin against God. You know why? Because that sin will affect your kids. Oh, it's one thing for God to judge me for my sin. It's another thing for my sin. And if you have grown up in an abusive home or had a friend whose father was a drunk, you're like, oh, oh, it's awful. They didn't want to go home. They cowered in fear and hide, hid from their abusiveness. And those children have the effects of sin. How, how, where do the effects of sin go? Well, let's read the description of the glory of God in verse 7 of Exodus 34. He visit visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What is he saying here? Grandchildren and great-grandchildren. This is probably to the extent of if, if my great-grandfather sinned and his sin really doesn't influence me because it's likely I didn't know him. Uh, but if my grandfather or great-grandfather was a drunk or an addict or a habitual liar or fraud or he was a gambler or any number of sins that just is going to affect everybody around them, We may have financial poverty because of the sin of my parents or grandparents. Your sin affects people around you. This is part of the glorious character of our God. So what does God do? He warns parents, grandparents, and even if you have great grandparents, that's probably the extent of your influence on the next generations, okay, It's usually grandchildren and maybe great-grandchildren. But that's who you're going to influence. And if they're around you and you give them really awful, ungodly, against Psalm 1 advice, you're a scorner, you hate God, you're an atheist, whatever, or you're just uh, giving excuses for your sin and people have to, that want to grow, as Christians they have to avoid you or everything you say they have to take it with a huge grain of salt or they just delete it because they realize You're not a good influence on your life, on my life. That's how sin affects others. So God has a warning here. For those, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do we see this around the life of Christ? Well, the relative, I believe it's a father-in-law of Caiaphas is Annas also a high priest, and both of them together schemed about how to get rid of Jesus. Paul, the Apostle Paul, probably knew about Jesus. He's maybe a teenager, maybe even a younger than that, the time Jesus is crucified. He hears about it. He is there, not as a leader yet, but he is collecting the coats of those who are stoning Stephen. He is the next generation of adamant Judaizers who hate Jesus hate all the followers of Jesus, and we've got to stamp out this Christianity. And the sins of Paul's parents and other spiritual leaders of that generation, the generation before, is filtered down to these radical people who are willing to stone an innocent man like Stephen just because he preaches in Acts 7 what they do not want to hear. And in Stephen's message, he says, you have seen the glory of God. And, Mo, and, and uh, Stephen gets to see the glory of God while he's getting stoned. And the response of the people around Stephen, they're gnashing their teeth at him. They're throwing dust in the air. And then they finally drag him out and stone him to death. See, your sin just doesn't affect you. Your secret private sin... Your habitual sin, sin that you love and that you have are catering to, sin that has been exposed because you can see the glory of God as a Christian. If if you know that your sin it's just not about you, it's like secondhand smoke is not just about the smoker, but the, the destruction of people around you. Your sin affects others. This is the glory of God that all Christians can see. So what is our How do we respond? How do we grow? We need to grow in our sinning less against Jesus. If my sin affects other people, I need to sin less. This is the last attribute of God that we see. This is the last glorious thing that we see about God's character. And number one and number seven and eight, we cannot reflect to the world. It's not our job. But we need to learn and we need to know the glory of God And not reflect it, but show dependence on him in number one. And then number seven, confess our sin to him because he will expose all of our iniquity and transgression and sin. Also realize that our sin affects other people. Those even to children or grandchildren, third generation, and great-grandchildren will be the fourth generation. Your sin affects other people. Take your sin seriously. All right. So, how are we changed? Let's go back to first uh, Corinthians or second Corinthians and I'm just going to briefly just show you what the Holy Spirit does for us. As we go back there around Jesus crucifixion, I told you that Jesus shows us a perfect representation of, of not clearing or visiting the iniquity of the fathers. Pilate washes his hands and says he is innocent. The Jewish leaders respond with his blood be on us and on our children. They're taking responsibility in Matthew 27, 25. They say those exact words. We will take responsibility for killing Jesus and we'll put that responsibility on our kids too. And when Peter and Paul and Stephen later preach in Acts 3 and 5 and 7, they call out the Jewish leaders and say, you have killed the author of life, the prince of life, the glorious Messiah. You have murdered and betrayed him and murdered him. And the way they respond is, you're laying this man's blood on us. They actually took the blood on them. And that when, when confronted later, <laughs> they didn't want to be responsible. God visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers, you better think before you sin. Your sin doesn't just affect you. So we are changed as we see the glory. We see our God on the left side, and we respond in growth. This is a gradual growth. As we see him, we're changed from glory to glory. How are we being changed? From the inside. Who's living inside of us as Christians? It's the Holy Spirit. When does he come? He comes at the moment of our salvation. So the moment we turn from our sin, we see the glory of Jesus and the empty tomb, and we submit to Jesus as Lord. He is my Savior, He is my King. I want Him, <laughs> I want Him to, to forgive me. I believe everything the Bible says about Him. We're born again. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And the Holy Spirit now takes the word of God and the glory that we can see in the Word, and He starts changing us from glory to glory to glory to glory. He makes us look like numbers two to six. He helps us learn from Jesus is the I am. I better depend on him. How do I show dependence? Like i probably better pray, better read the word, better meditate on God's word day and night. Yeah, I better take my sins seriously, number seven and eight. Yeah, because God is willing to judge and will judge. So the Holy Spirit changes us. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 3. So we are being transformed into the same image, the same image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another. This is a gradual, lifelong process from the moment of salvation till God takes us to heaven, and that's glorification. We're not going to need change then. We'll have glorified bodies. We won't struggle with sin. For this time, from the time of our salvation till the time of our physical death, this process should be going on. What's this process? See him, submit to him, show him. So the Holy Spirit is the person. It's not a force. He's not, can, he cannot be used for evil, as you see Darth Vader and Obi-Wan. Try to figure out how to use the force for good and evil. Oh, the evil looks stronger. The good looks not as strong. That's baloney. In Revelation, the evil is not even close to being as strong as the righteous. It's not even a fair fight when Jesus comes. We're on white horses behind him, and we don't even have to touch a sword. The sword comes out of Jesus' mouth and kills the billions of rebels on the earth. And then as the sand of the sea in Revelation 20, when Jesus is ruling and reigning on earth for the thousand years, as the sand of the sea, the righteous are surrounded in Jerusalem, And all does fire comes from heaven and devours them. That's all the Bible says. Again, probably billions of people destroyed. It's not a fair fight. It's not, oh, evil and good is so close. It's, no. We have to think. We have to see the glory of God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the judge. How are we changed by the Spirit of God? I did not. Oh, I'm just gonna give it to you all at once. Okay, so if you did this study, as I encourage you to do three weeks ago, this is what you would find. The Holy Spirit of God. All I'm gonna do is read these and we will we'll close. In 2.4, 1 Corinthians 2 4. And this is what the Corinthians would have known when they read the Holy Spirit changes us. He's the one who transforms us. Okay? Here is what they already knew. They could look back at the letter, 1 Corinthians, they could look back at 2 Corinthians up to this point and realize the Holy Spirit does a whole lot for Christians. Oh, yes, he's active. He's doing it. And he's doing this for us too. Controls speech. In, in particular, he controls preaching in 1 Corinthians 2 4. He reveals God's truth. You see that in those five verses of chapter 2, 10 to 13, 10 to 14. He indwells, he makes every Christian's body the temple of God. ...of the Holy Spirit. We see that in 3.16, again in 6.19. This is why we should not commit immorality. Okay, That's 6.19. 1 Corinthians 6.11, this is a glorious verse. The Holy Spirit is the one who washes us. He washed us at the moment of salvation. He sanctified us, made us holy, and He justified us. To to, um, summarize it, He makes us right with God. Without the Holy Spirit, none of that happens. The Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation... He makes us right with God. 7.40, at the end of Paul's lengthy chapter about uh, marriage and remarriage and singleness, uh, he says, I even have the Spirit of God. So he forms an opinion uh, that in, in Paul. 1 Corinthians 12.3, talking about the uh, spiritual gifts and their magnifying. No one can say that Jesus is Lord without the power of the Spirit. And no one can say Jesus is accursed. Um, with the Spirit, okay? So the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus as Lord in the life of the believer. A lengthy passage there, 4 to 11, he's mentioned several times, and he is empowering believers to strengthen the church. The church is stronger as uh, believers are submissive to the Spirit. Twelve, thirteen, top right column there. He immerses us, he, or or calls us baptized in the body of Christ. That happens at the moment of our salvation. It has nothing to do with water, he immerses us or puts us in the body of Christ. 14.2, he uh, speaks. And this is the asterisks here are uh, warnings and not necessarily uh, what we should do. So you can go back to 14.2 and 14.12 and the people that were trying to show the spirit in a way that wasn't, um, wasn't right. So that's what 14.2 uh, and 14.12 are about. 2 Corinthians 1.22, he guarantees that we belong to God in Christ. He is our guarantee. 3.3, three, in the same chapter that we're in, he recommends us to other believers. 3.8, he gives life to us. If we're born again, the Holy Spirit gives us life. 3.17, he sets us free to see God's glory. And then 3.18, he transforms us. Why wouldn't you want to submit to him? It doesn't make any sense. Like Here's the glory of God. This is a... There's a book written called The Forgotten God, and this is a member of the Godhead that's forgotten. But this is probably the member of the Godhead who's working most for us right now in every believer. And we're bold in our ministry because everybody can see the glory of God. And everybody should be changing. No, Nobody comes and exposes himself to the glory of God without showing that glory in life. And if you're not growing and you're not changing and you're not seeing him and you're not submitting to him, the church needs to come around you and provoke you to love and good works. Because everybody can see him. And that's what Paul's doing here for the Corinthians. Saying, you guys can all see him. Moses only got to see him, covered his face with a veil. When we turn to Christ, the veil's taken away, and we can all see him. We can all be changed by the Spirit. And he has been working. He has been doing all these things for you as Corinthians. He's been doing all these things for us as believers too. So let's submit to him. All right, what's our outline? Three S's. We need to then, then, all right. Now let's pray for grace to do that. Let's let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us your glory. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. Help us not to give any more excuses about why we can't see you Help us to not give any more rebellion against you and submission, lack of submission against you. Help us to submit. Help us to see whatever is wrong with the way we think, the way what we want, maybe it's control. I pray that you would change our heart, change our desires, change our mind, change our speech, change our actions. Help us to reflect the glory of God. Help us to depend on you because you are the I am. and You will one day judge. Help us to take our sins seriously. Thank you so much for the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us that helps us to grow. Help us to submit to him and walk in him and not fulfill the lust of our flesh. In Jesus' name.